The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Uh, whether you're here in person or watching online, glad that you're here. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at City Rev. And uh, we are in the middle of a series called How to Not Wreck Your Life. And so if you're interested in learning about how to not wreck your life, you've come to the right place. Uh, or you've gone to the right place on your internet browser. So I uh, want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open up to Jude it's a very small letter towards the end of the Bible, so you can go ahead and turn there, turn to Jude. Uh, and while you're either going on your Bible app or uh, on your Bible, and if you don't have a, a, a Bible, by the way, we'll put the verses on the screen so you can still follow along. But while you're turning there, I want to let you know there's two big things happening today that we're very excited about. The first, uh, if you're here in person, you saw on your way in, uh, we have a block party set up out there. There's food, there's drinks, there's games, there's a dunk tank where you can have fun at the expense of somebody else. Uh, you can all sorts of fun things out there for you and your family to be able to enjoy. We'd love for you to hang out after service. I also want to let you know that at the end of our service today, we're going to be celebrating baptism. So there's going to be uh, individuals who have put their faith in Jesus that are going to be declaring that through baptism. We've been seeing people get baptized all day long. It's been an exciting day. And so make sure you stick around and get to participate and join in that. Well, with those two things uh, clear, I want to invite you to pray with me once more as we enter into our time of Bible study. Would you pray? Right there where you are, just in a quiet moment, would you just, from your heart to God, would you just say something like this to God? Would you say, God, would you speak to me today? God, teach me more of who you are. God, show me if there's something I need to see for my own life. God, would you give me insight? Give me wisdom. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start our time by inviting you into a little exercise. Uh, I want to invite you to use your imagination with me, okay? So uh, whatever you got to do to get your imagination ready, whether that's close your eyes or like rub your temples, whatever you got to do, get your imagination ready. I want you to envision with me that it's the first century AD. And so it's a long time ago. And you live in a city that's occupied by the world superpower of the time, Rome. And your city is under Roman occupation and you, you live there. And let's say for our purposes, imagine with me, you come from a Jewish background. And somewhere along in your life, there's this individual who came to your city whose name is Jude. And he's this traveling missionary who starts proclaiming from city to city that the Messiah that the Jews had been taught about their whole lives... The Messiah they've been anticipating and waiting on has finally come and his name is Jesus. And this Messiah has made a way for people to be reconciled to God. And so you, upon hearing this news from Jude, you believe in this Jesus, the Messiah. And now your entire life shifts and changes as you pattern your life after the Messiah, Jesus. And so you go on living your life and you gather together with other Jesus followers in your city. Very likely, if it was a Sunday and you're gathering together with your fellow church members, you'd be gathering together in the courtyard of one of the uh, members of your church's home. Whoever in the church had the largest, largest home with the biggest courtyard could gather the most people, would likely host the church gathering there. And so you'd gather together. And so it's a Sunday. And imagine with me, you hear that there's a messenger who's come from out of town. And this messenger has come with a letter from Jude. You're excited because Jude has been such an impact on your life. You're excited to hear what's Jude going to say to us. And you know, not only has Jude been a huge impact on your life, 
But many of the people in your church who also followed Jesus, Jude was the one that God used to impact their life. So the messenger stands up before the whole congregation, maybe 40 or 50 of them, gathered together with some children, you know, mom saying, hey, shh, quiet down, you know, all that happening. And imagine with me, the messenger gets up and he starts reading this letter from Jude. And Jude starts, as most letters do, with this, you know, beginning pleasantries, you're beloved, you're kept in Jesus. And he starts talking about their relationship to Jesus, about the mercy and grace and peace of Jesus, and it's wonderful. And all the congregation is happy. Yeah, that's right. That's true. And then Jude gets to the meat of his letter. It's the main reason why he writes the letter. And all of a sudden, the messenger starts reading the words from Jude. And the words from Jude start to get a little bit more direct. And you hear him say things like, I'm writing to you, although I intended to write to you about our common salvation. I'm writing to you a word of warning. And the letter continues and he says, there are some people in your midst who have crept in unnoticed. There are people who are in your church who are actually bringing destruction to your church. And right there in front of the whole congregation continues reading on. They have perverted the grace of Jesus, these individuals. They deny Jesus as their master. And he lays into them in this letter. This short little letter is basically this picking apart of these individuals who are now bringing their toxic practice into this church community. And Jude would have none of it. And so if you're there and you're hanging out in that courtyard, chances are you're peeking over your right shoulder and your left shoulder like, who's he talking about? <laughs> is it Bill over there? Like, uh... Susie, like, who, who's, who's he talking about? And, and you're looking around, and the room is quiet. It's uncomfortable and awkward. This is the letter of Jude. And what we're doing in this series is we're examining some of the characteristics of these people, of this group of individuals that was bringing this toxicity into their community. And we're examining these characteristics so that we ourselves might be able to begin detecting when these start to surface in our own lives. Most people don't wake up one day and say, I want to wreck my life and the life of the people I love. It's not how it works. It's usually a slow progression, step by step. And so by identifying these characteristics, we can protect ourselves, guard ourselves from be becoming those types of people. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to look at Jude, verse 11. We're going to start there and uh, make our way through a part of this passage. Look with me. Here's what it says. Jude writes, woe to them. He's pronouncing a word of judgment on these individuals, on these uh, toxic individuals in their community. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So last week, if you were here with us in part one, we started talking about the beginning of this verse in verse 11. Uh, basically, here in this verse, Jude cites three Old Testament examples of notoriously wicked people. He starts with Cain. Last week, we explored the story of Cain further in part one. This week, we're going to take a look at the second one, Balaam. And next week, we'll explore Korah's story. But Balaam is an individual who is kind of complicated. His story in Numbers chapters 22 through 24 is something of an, an enigma. It's hard to make sense of what's happening. Why is this in the Bible? What's this showing me? Because it's a little bit confusing. 
And Balaam is here being drawn upon by Jude as an example for us to understand the type of people that were there in their midst. So let's talk a little bit about Balaam. Who was Balaam? Well, we find out in Numbers 22 that Balaam was kind of like this pseudo-prophet. He was a prophet who practiced divination and like interpreted omens, who was from Mesopotamia. And Balaam had built quite the reputation and had become quite famous in, among the surrounding nations as kind of the go-to guy. Like if you needed some sort of spiritual insight, you go to Balaam. And so Balaam's this guy. He makes money. This is his career. He, as his job, he takes, you know, important people's money. And then he, on their behalf, goes and consults the deity, varying, varying gods. And so there's this king whose name is Balak. Everybody say the name Balak with me. Ready? Balak. Very good. Okay, Balak. And this king Balak, he is the king of Moab, which is a nation right around the area where Israel is encamping. And King Balak of Moab hears word that there's this nation called Israel that escaped from the world superpower of the time, Egypt. Egypt at this particular time in Numbers was the dominant force, huge military, feared among the other nations. And Balak finds out that Israel escaped and was delivered from the hand of the Egyptians. On top of that, Israel, by the time we get to Numbers 22, is fresh off of a streak of defeating several enemy nations that had tried to attack them. And Israel had victory after victory. And so Balak, he starts to get nervous. He's worried hearing about all of this that's happening with Israel and wondering if Moab is next. Says he's in dread of the people of Israel. So Balak comes up with an idea. He says, I know how I'll protect myself and my nation. I'm going to call up Balaam. And watch what happens. Look with me. Numbers 22. I'm going to read for you a few verses starting in verse 6. It says this. Come now. Curse this people for me. Since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in hand. So they've got the money that they're going to pay Balaam to come and curse Israel. And they came to Balaam and they gave him Balak's message. He said to them, lodge here tonight and I'll bring back a word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. All right, let's catch up here with what's happening. Balaam is someone who interprets omens. He is a, a seer, a pseudo-prophet. And the way he makes a living is important people like kings would hire Balaam to go and inquire of whichever god they worshipped and pronounce some sort of word of blessing or cursing on behalf of that god. Balaam claimed to have some type of divine authority and ability. And in exchange for some money, you could employ his services. Now, as we read that and we get to know Balaam, first and foremost, just clearly out the gate, that is completely out of step with the way God works. God is not pleased with someone making a career of claiming to have authority that's actually not theirs. Balak says about Balaam, hey, I know he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Balak is actually quoting, and without really realizing it, he's quoting and giving the authority to Balaam that God says he alone has. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham about him and his descendants, 
Whoever blesses you, I will bless, but whoever curses you, I will curse. And here Balak is saying this about Balaam. And so Balaam, he is this guy presenting this front, I've got you, and he's hired to go ahead and curse Israel. But as you continue reading the story, Balaam, he's a complicated guy. It's difficult to pin him down because he goes on to say some things that kind of sound right. It doesn't all sound bad when it comes to Balaam. He says things that sound kind of godly. Look at what it says in verses 15 through 18. Balaam basically sends those initial messengers away. Balak is dissatisfied. He's like, I'm not giving up. We've got to have Balaam come. So it says this in verse 15. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and they said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come. Curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, listen to this, though Balak were able to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. King Balak, he's dissatisfied with taking no for an answer. So he says, no, I'm going to send like the really important people. I'm going to send like royalty over to Balaam and we're going to convince him. We're going to bring more riches and he's going to see that he needs to come and curse this people for me. And then Balaam responds in a way that sounds right. He says, listen, you could give me your house full of silver and gold. I won't be able to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now, whenever you're reading in the Old Testament of the Bible and you're reading in that initial section, the Hebrew Bible, and you come across the word Lord, the word Lord. Sometimes the word Lord is spelled in all capital letters, and sometimes it's just spelled with a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. Whenever you see it translated in English, Lord, with all capital letters, that's the English translator's way of cueing us as the readers to the fact that the original language is using the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, there. And so when he says, I can't go beyond what the Lord my God commands of me, Balaam, this pagan, Mesopotamian, pseudo-prophet, omen interpreter, diviner, is saying, I can't go beyond what Yahweh my God tells me. To use the name Yahweh communicates something about your allegiance. It's the personal name of God in a similar way to where a child might call their father something that no one else calls their father that thing because of their relationship to them. Here, Balaam is claiming this type of relationship, the, the Lord my God, Yahweh my God. So what do we do with Balaam? He's confusing. We get a mixed bag when it comes to, to Balaam. Well, he continues on as the, story, uh, as the story unfolds. You read on, I encourage you, if you have time later, read uh, Numbers 22 through 24. It is a wild story. So Balaam eventually caves, he gives in, and he goes with the rest of those honorable men. He goes over to Balak on a mission to curse the people. And on his way, he's riding his donkey. It's a funny story. He's riding his donkey, and he's on his way to go uh, meet Balak to go curse Israel. And the donkey sees in front of him, on the way, the donkey sees the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, standing with sword drawn looking down this donkey. And the donkey freaks out, runs away. Balaam, meanwhile, couldn't see the angel in front of him, so he whips and beats the donkey, getting angry at the donkey for going off track. 
And this happens three times. Over and over again. The same sequence happens. The donkey sees the angel of Yahweh, sword drawn and diverts, moves away. This is the Bible's funny way of owning Balaam, showing he has less spiritual insight than the donkey he's riding on. He has no vision. He has no ability to bless and curse. And so Balaam goes on. He eventually goes and he actually can't offer up a cursing on God's people. He instead offers up a blessing on them three times. And so when we look at Balaam's story, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of that common movie plot line where there's a character that's introduced that you just don't know what to make of them. Are they a good guy? Are they a bad guy? Like what's happening here? Sometimes in movies, someone is introduced and they're just too nice. Like there's no, no one's that nice. What are you, like what are you scheming? I remember recently, the most recent um, Spider-Man movie that I saw, there's a character introduced towards the beginning and he's like this great guy. He's like this heroic style guy and he ends up being the one who wreaks havoc. Right, this is a movie plot line we see all the time. That's how I feel about Balaam. What do we make of him? He's a, an omen interpreter promising to do things that he can't really do. But at the same time, he's saying, hey, listen, I can't take all that money unless Yahweh my God allows me. You could give me all the money you want. Whatever Yahweh my God commands me, that's what I'm going to do. And so Balaam, this complicated figure, as you keep reading through the story, we finally find out what's really going on. As you continue on in Numbers chapter 31, we find out that Balaam conspired later with King Balak. And he came up with a different plan to try and stop God's people. So what they did was they came up with a plan to send women from Moab to seduce the men of Israel. And these women from Moab seduced these men and turned their hearts to worship these other gods, the pagan gods that they worship. To take their devotion away from Yahweh and to take their devotion to Baal. And Balaam is the one behind this. He's the mastermind behind this plan. As you continue reading on in the story of the Bible, Balaam is mentioned several times as this icon, an example of being self-centered, of being slimy, of being two-faced. He's this icon of someone who is not the kind of guy you want to be around. He's the quintessential example of someone who's all in it for himself, self-consumed, knows the right things to say at the right time, can kind of sound like he's saying the right things, but in the end, he's ultimately all about himself. This is Balaam. And Jude here is saying that there are some people in this church, there's some people in their community that have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. There are people in that church that have given themselves over. They've sold out for personal gain. That they know how to present on the outside and communicate on the outside one thing, but on the inside, their actual motives are for personal gain, for selfishness, for personal enrichment, and Jude is calling them out. It's toxic to their community. It's wrecking their relationships. Jude is pointing it out. And listen to how he continues in verse 12 of Jude. Jude 12, it says this. These people, there are hidden reefs. At your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Verse 12, he goes on to describe these individuals using this series of metaphors. He says they are hidden reefs. In ancient times, there's no sonar. 
There's no way to have a, a fish finder see the ocean floor, the depth beneath you. And so there might be a coral reef right in front of you beneath the waters that you can't see. And you could be heading in a direction without even realizing it that's going to absolutely destroy your ship and bring you down. This is how he describes these individuals. They are hidden reefs. He goes on to describe them as waterless clouds. Just picture this with me. Imagine that we are in an agrarian society where you rely on the land for your sustenance, for your food. And just imagine that it's been a long time since it's rained. Your crops have not gotten the amount of rain that they need. And then you look up in the sky and you notice like this gray cloud starting to form and you get excited. Because when you see a gray cloud, what it's presenting, what it's demonstrating to you visually is that rain is coming. Jude is saying that these individuals... They're like clouds that have the appearance of being able to provide something, but in reality, they're empty. Just like Balaam, claiming authority and ability that's actually not his. He says they're like trees with no fruit in late autumn. They're fruitless trees at the time of harvest when what is presenting is this tree that ought to be producing fruit, but in reality, there's no fruit at all. This type of individual, this type of individual that is presenting the ability to do something, that is presenting, saying the right things, claiming allegiance to God, has maybe even good theology, but inside on the, in the heart. That individual is ultimately out for gain. They've sold out. It's all about them. And so they'll use God, they'll use spirituality, they'll use their church engagement to feed themselves. Jude is calling them out. Now, uh, we've reached the point in our message time where I'd like to invite your audience participation a little bit, okay? So whether you're watching online, you can put in the chat, comment section there to respond. If you're here in the room, just shout out at me the answer to this question, okay? I want you to think for a moment of a brand uh, that you recently purchased something from or subscribed to, any brand, any type of brand, just shout it out, put it in the chat. What is it? Amazon. Go ahead. What, what else? Cole Haan. Okay, anything else? Nike. Nike. All right, can I have a few more? Ford. Ford. All right, any others? Papa John's. Okay, so there we go. So we got all sorts of different types of uh, restaurants, uh, tech companies, cult clothing companies. Great. I want you to think about that brand. Uh, maybe you purchase from them often or um, you, you like to wear their clothing, whatever the case might be. And I want you to think about your relationship to that brand. Uh, just as an example for me. So uh, back in March of last year in 2020, when the world shut down, one of the first things that I did was I canceled my gym membership, like many of you, right? And there, there was a reason I canceled my gym membership. It wasn't because I was angry at the gym. It wasn't because their equipment was lackluster. It wasn't because the management was just really horrible. No, the reason I canceled my membership is because I couldn't go. Like there was nothing in it for me anymore. Why would I keep paying for something that I'm actually not getting anything from? And that's in essence, one of the ways you think about all consumer relationships. And so the reason you purchase the products you do, uh, the reason that you fly on the airline that you fly on or wear that particular clothing brand is because there's something in it for you. And so you'll give, the, you'll give your money of what it costs because there's a value that you feel like it's bringing to your life. And so long as there's something in it for you, you'll gladly continue with that brand 
But the moment comes that you can no longer go to the gym. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, it's nothing offensive. I'm just out. There's nothing in it for me anymore. That's the way consumer relationships work. The challenge is, though, when we take that type of thinking, what's in it for me, and we start to bring that type of thinking into other areas of our lives. When we start to look at our friendships through the lens of what's in it for me. When we start to look at our family life through the lens of what's in it for me. Ultimately, Balaam, the way Balaam operated, the driving force behind Balaam's everything, even the cloak of religious garb and language where he says, ah, Yahweh, my God, I won't do anything. Meanwhile, there's all this talk in the narrative about the fees for divination, about the money that he's expecting, about the honor that he's being given. All of that is a facade deep down. What Balaam is really after is what's in it for him. It's all about what will be beneficial to him. And when we bring that type of thinking into our spiritual engagement, we take that type of what's in it for me mentality into our walk with God, our engagement with our church community, that's when we see true damage. You see, uh, here's the thing I want you to write down from Jude 11 and 12. Here's the big idea I want you to write down in your notes. It's this, that what's in it for me spirituality will wreck your life. What's in it for me, spirituality, will wreck your life. It will wreck your life and it will wreck the lives of the people around you. Here's what what's in it for me, spirituality, looks like. It looks like God becoming a means to an end. It looks like my engagement with my church. It looks like me doing good deeds or trying to ramp up my prayer life or be extra good, stop doing bad things that I know I shouldn't be doing for a time. I'm going to not do those things to try and get something I really need from God. And so let me be on my best behavior for this season because I have this thing coming up. It's kind of like this. Um, imagine with me that uh, if you have a child um, and you're a parent and uh, that child is just outright rude and hurtful towards you all the time. Imagine that all the time, no affection, no love, no obedience, no honor, just the child can't stand you, lies to your face, total broken trust, and it breaks your heart as a parent. But then imagine with me for a moment that a time of year comes and that entire child's life is different. Now all of a sudden, they start doing work around the house and doing the dishes and leaving you sweet notes saying how grateful they are for you. And now they start to uh, say, hey, you know what? I don't want to hang out with my friends on Friday night. I want to hang out and have some family time. Imagine all these things start changing and they give you hugs and affection and they're totally different. And it happens to be the month of their birthday. <laughs> their birthday comes, you as a parent, you love your child, you give them a great birthday, you get them their gift, what they wanted, they get the gift. The next day comes and it's back to the way it was before. They can't stand you, don't want a thing to do with you. You as a parent would conclude it was all fake. They used me. They did not love me. That is the image of what it looks like when what's in it for me becomes our engagement with God. Where God becomes a means to an end. And so I'll do certain religious spiritual type things so that I can get what I actually want from God. 
And I might ramp up my spiritual engagement when there's something big coming up. I've got a job interview or I've got this big test coming up. Or I'm going to find out if I got into that school or if I'm in a relationship that is heading towards marriage. And as I ramp up that. And if at its core, our spiritual engagement is ultimately about ourselves. That's the way of Balaam. That's toxic to our faith. It's self-centered and it's the antithesis of the gospel. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, it says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That one, Jesus, has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And Jesus died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That the point of Jesus coming to this earth was the the simple fact that we as human beings, by default, live for ourselves. We come out of the womb asking what's in it for me, and we keep asking that question. It's all about ourselves. It's all about my, my things and my needs and my wants. It revolves around us. And Jesus has come to set us free from the slavery and tyranny of self centeredness He's come to set us free from that so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but instead live for the one who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus invites his followers to be set free from what's in it for me. We've been called in obedience to Jesus. We've been called to follow in his footsteps, to paint a picture to the world around us that we live for the one who came and died for us. And we will gladly pour our lives out, laying our preferences aside so that we might be loving and kind, might be controlled by that love of Christ. And so here in this passage in Jude, we're cautioned about this way of Balaam that's abandoning yourself, giving yourself over to the pursuit of gain, just as Balaam did. And I want you to think just practically with me for a moment. I want you to think about two different categories in your life. We've already touched on them. And ways in which this starts to play out. Number one, I want you to just think about your own relationship with God. Your engagement with God. I want you to think about your view of God. Have you slipped into this place? Have you drifted into this place where your view of God is that if there's something I need in my life, maybe I have a health issue that I need help with. Maybe I... I'm dissatisfied with my current living situation. I need something better. Maybe I'm going through something that I can't fix on my own. And so I go to God and I have this expectation that God needs to fix this and heal this or get me the job I want or whatever it is that I'm asking for. And so I'll even pray to God, ask him, help me. And prayer is awesome. We should be praying to God. And maybe you start going to church more and trying to reconnect. Maybe you grew up in church and you decide, hey, I need to go back to church. That'll help me with this. And so you start going back to church more. And then maybe, maybe you start to even read the Bible. And so you're praying and going to church more and reading the Bible more. All wonderful things that you should be doing. But then the thing comes and it doesn't go as you asked. God does not answer your prayer as you requested. The test, the way to understand what your true motives were, 
is if at the end of that, when God does not meet your expectations, is that a cue for us to get angry at God and say, I'm done? It doesn't work. What's the point? Because if our expectations aren't met, if God doesn't follow through with what we asked him to do and what we say he must serve us to do, then all of a sudden I'm done, I'm out. What that evidence is is that from the very beginning, it hasn't been about prayer and worship and reading the Bible. It's been about that thing that you just need God for. It's showing what your true God is. And what you've used God as a tool ultimately just to get you what you want. Just like it's wonderful for children to write sweet notes to their parents and want to spend quality time with them and help around the house doing the dishes. Those are all wonderful things. But if at their core, it's motivated by what's in it for me, it's fake. And God sees through that. He, he's not blinded to what's in our hearts and what's really down deep and at work. And so what's in it for me in our relationship with God, it'll wreck your life. God, God will completely disrupt your expectations. That's not the way he operates. We serve God, not the other way around. He's not the tool. He's not the means. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He's the ultimate. And he desires for us to worship him as the ultimate. The second category I want you to think through right now is with your own relationship to your church. I recognize that there are some of us, maybe you're newer to church or uh, someone recently invited you. You're just kind of checking it out. Uh, there are some of us in this room that maybe we grew up in the church. So we've been following Jesus and, and all we know is church for a long time. You know, it's possible to have an engagement with your church that's ultimately all about what's in it for me. And when that starts to set in, when our engagement with our church becomes all about what's in it for me, then the moment something happens that doesn't cater to my preferences, the moment that something happens where I, I feel upset, where I feel hurt, rather than me going to that person as scripture would call us to, humbly, with grace, but with truth saying, hey, here's how I'm feeling, here's how that felt, can you help me understand and bring about an opportunity for reconciliation? If we're all about what's in it for me, the moment our expectations and our preferences aren't catered to, we get angry, we grumble, we gossip, we build up a, an army of people to pull together. Hey, isn't this terrible? Isn't this bad? And we pull together people and get people on our side. And we bring disunity. We bring division. What's in it for me is toxic to a church. It's toxic to our own relationships to one another when in reality, laying our preferences aside, laying all of those things that are different about us aside, we follow a savior who transcends all of our preferences, who has a greater uniting power than all of our differences. And so when what's in it for me starts to take root, if, if that's the way you view, for example, your engagement with small group. Here at City Rev, one of the ways that this larger environment becomes smaller, where you build relationships, is you get into groups of people. We call them small groups. And we gather together and we pray for each other. We study the Bible together. We encourage one another. When we're going through a difficult time, we bring each other meals. We serve each other. And if our groups, our small groups, where we are this 
tight-knit community, if our groups become individuals who are there because there's something just in it for them, well, the moment it becomes inconvenient, the moment it becomes too exhausting, I've got too much, well, I'm backing out real quick because what's in it for me anymore? But if instead my engagement with small group, my engagement with my church community where I serve, instead of my mentality is, hey, God, what do you want to do through me? God, how might you want to use me? And if a group of people come with the intention of, God, how might you want to use me? That creates the, the environment where you can have true relationships and friendships, where true unity can be forged, where love can be put on display. But the moment it gets hard, I'm out. And then the day will come when we ourselves are the ones who need someone to pray for us. When we ourselves are the ones who need someone to just listen to us share our burdens, to ask advice. And if what's in it for me is the defining characteristic of my group, well, then there will be no one around to encourage me. Time will come when it's just too hard. The time will come when it's just not doing anything for me. And Jesus would invite us to ask the question, God, what do you want to do through me? The moment we take our eyes and place them on what's in it for me and get consumed with and get controlled by our own self-centered desires, our own ways, our own thinking, the moment that we sell ourselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir is the precise moment we take our eyes off the mission that Jesus has given us. A church turned inward, self-consumed, what's in it for me, has rendered itself useless for the mission of God in the world. We're here as a church believing that our calling is to reveal Jesus to our city that our calling is to take this good news out and bring it as light into dark places, to bring the truth and the hope of Jesus into the world so that others might experience the transformation we've experienced in Jesus. But the moment I turn my attention to and get consumed by what's in it for me, I've taken my eyes off the mission. God would have us come and say and be a part of a church that is focused on the mission. God, what do you wanna do through me? You know, the question becomes, how do you guard, how do you guard against becoming this type of person? Like in Jude's context, how did those people become the types of people who became like Balaam? How does that happen? Very likely it wasn't a, a one day, day and night decision, all of a sudden snap of a finger and they're completely different. More often than not, it's step by step by step. And there's a practice that Jesus gave to us, that God has given to us, that helps us guard against that drift. Guard against that drift towards self-centeredness. I, I want you to just, uh, as a metaphor, I want you to think about a garden. Maybe anybody here ever plant something? You got some veggies in your backyard. We live in South Florida. It's pretty hot, hard to grow, a lot of things. But anyways, you might have some, uh, a garden you've planted or trees you've planted. Just think about a garden for a moment. If you have a garden and you don't tend to it, you just kind of leave it alone. What happens to that garden? Well, that garden does not automatically drift into beauty and order and things being trimmed and looking wonderful. No, what it gets drifted into is a big pile of weeds. 
All sorts of disorder and chaos. The only way to have a beautiful garden is to tend to it. The moment you ignore it, you create the environment where weeds will grow. It'll be infected. It'll be taken over. In a similar way, that's how our hearts work. That if we have an unattended heart, an unexamined heart, the natural flow and current of our heart will default towards self-centeredness will default towards what's in it for me. That's the way of our hearts. And so one of the practices that God has given us is found in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. It's a type of prayer. I want to read this prayer to you. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. The author writes this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. An unexamined heart is fertile soil for self-centeredness to begin to grow and creep in. And when we pray prayers like, God, search my heart. When we pray prayers like, God, help me to understand what's on my mind. Know my thoughts. When we pray that type of examining prayer, we open ourselves up to God to be able to start speaking into those areas where we might be prone to self-centeredness, where we might be drifting. And so I, I encourage you, pray and ask God for the things and the burdens you have in your life. Maybe you have a list of things you pray to God about for your children, for your health, for a family situation. Pray about those things. God invites you to come to him with your prayers. But another part of prayer, a different type of prayer is also this prayer where we say, God, would you search my heart right now? God, help me understand why I got so frustrated earlier today at this person. Why that comment made me so angry, so insecure. Search me, God, give me understanding. And when we tend to our hearts like that, when we invite God in, the Holy Spirit to come and search the motivations, what's happening deep inside, God begins his work of identifying, hey, yeah, there's a weed there that needs to be uprooted, that your heart has to be tended to. And God, by his grace, wants to help you to transform your heart that you might become more and more like Jesus. A helpful, practical way for us, something that we can install in our lives is this regular rhythm of praying, that type of prayer. A prayer of confession, a prayer of examination, going directly to God saying, God, show me. Would you show my heart? Expose the things in me that need to be done away with. Here's the good news. It's that we serve a God who is the anti-Balaam. Jesus is in every way the opposite of Balaam. Balaam became famous. His fame spread far because he used others to enrich himself. But Jesus, whose fame spread much farther, he loved others by emptying himself. He loved others and gave himself up. He became a servant. God, the glorious one who is worthy of all praise, as we sang earlier, this Jesus emptied himself and became a servant became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus laid down his life for you and for me so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but so that we might live for him, for the sake of the one who died and was raised for us. May we be a church that's not consumed with what's in it for me, 
but may we be a church who comes realizing we're imperfect people, we're works in progress, but as for us, it's our heart to ask the question, God, what do you wanna do through me? It's not about control, it's about contribution. It's not about me, it's about the mission. Father, help us in this moment. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now as your children requesting that you would give us grace. Give us wisdom. Search our hearts, Lord. Would you show us if there's any offensive way in us right now in this moment and we just confess that to you. Thanking you, Jesus, that you've already secured our forgiveness. Father, we admit we are prone towards what's in it for me. And we need your grace on a daily basis to be set free from that tyranny that we might live for your sake and pouring ourselves out for the people around us. May the love of Christ control us. If you're here with your head bowed and eyes closed and you'd say, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I've never put my trust in him. I wanna invite you to do that right now, whether you're watching online or right here. You can say something like this to God in your heart. You can just start and say, God, today I believe. God, today I put my trust in you. I believe Jesus died for me and that he rose up from death. I turn from living my life for me. And God, I ask your grace to live for you. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Hey, if you made that decision just now to put your trust in Jesus as your savior, I wanna celebrate that with you. We wanna share with you that that is the greatest decision you could ever make in your entire life. In a moment, there's gonna be some who are baptized because they also have put their faith in Jesus. And so if that's you, I wanna invite you to go ahead and take your phone out and go to cityrev.org faith. If that was your moment of faith, if that was when you put your trust in Jesus, go to cityrev.org faith. There's a few questions there. It'll take you a few seconds to fill out simple way for us to be able to connect with you and get a Bible to you. We'd love to help you start in this journey of getting to know about your creator, about his purpose for your life. And that starts with his word. Hey, we're gonna close here in a moment through song. We're also gonna get to celebrate baptisms. And when people are baptized, what they are communicating and proclaiming is that Jesus, he through his death also died for them. And so when they're buried down underneath the water, they are identifying with the death and burial of Jesus. And then when they're raised up out of the, the water, they're identifying with the resurrection life of Jesus. That we're not the same people we once were. We are made new in Jesus so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but that we might live for the one who died for us. And so we're gonna celebrate that today and cheer that on as someone proclaims the new life they found in Jesus. Would you go ahead and stand with us? Let's sing and celebrate baptism together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.